0: everybody. This is American Exception, and I'm Aaron Good. This episode is entitled A Mountain of Gold on the Moon, part one of our Battleground Indonesia series. It's a special collaboration with Haley Rounceville and Mike Oldfield of TheCulture.tv. You're obviously listening to the audio version, but this was really produced as a video production. Therefore, if you are able to watch this and get the full experience, I recommend downloading the video through the Patreon link which is also in the show notes for this episode. Very soon, the video will be on TheCulture.TV's YouTube channel, but I wanted to give all of you subscribers the first chance to check it out. Additionally, I wanted to make the content available to those who listen to these episodes in times and places that don't lend themselves to watching videos. Please don't try and watch any of our videos if you consume American Exception episodes while operating heavy machinery, performing surgery, or carrying out other tasks that demand your visual attention. I do think that this episode still works well as an audio version and that the narrative comes through well in this format. With all that said, enjoy the episode.
1: Hello, everybody, welcome back to the culture. We are an anti-imperialist collective of scholars, activists, uh, academics, from (laughs) various rabble from all around the world, talking about history, theory, politics from a Marxist point of view. Um, And I am joined today by my friend and esteemed historian uh, and deep state actor, uh, Aaron Good, and um, our our resident uh, theory master, uh, Mike Oldfield. What's up, gentlemen?
2: Great to be here again, Aaron, great to see you. you. Good to see you guys.
1: Yeah, thank you for your service. So what are we talking about today? That map on the screen might be a hint.
0: Well, we are going to be talking about what I think is one of the most um, explosive and momentous and suppressed stories of world history after World War II and that is uh, what happened to Indonesia, um, especially in 1965, and how that was something that was in the planning for decades. We're not going to get to 1965 today, but we're going to deal with the decades before the s- slaughter in 1965. And uh, that's where, where uh, that, uh, that I'm going to be talking about uh, Alan Dulles a lot. It'll eventually end up with the, um, covering the Kennedy assassination and the assassination of Dag Hammarskjöld and the world's biggest gold mine and the concealment of the world's biggest gold mine for decades. So this is um, a story that's, uh, it, it's, ama- it's really amazing and uh, it's, so I'm not only working on this video presentation to try to bring this story to people but there's an article coming and um, some other interviews and other things like that
1: yeah can i say who you're doing the article with
0: sure i was going to get that i'll get to that it's actually in the presentation so
1: all right um, I'll, i'll save it then um but he's kind of the guy who broke this whole story to begin with uh friend friend of the show perhaps but yeah so we last had aaron on to talk about jfk but we didn't take the traditional route. We kind of talked about the context surrounding the assassination. And one, one of the things that came up was Indonesia. And we didn't have much time to talk about it. And since in Ralph McGahey's words, this was the most successful CIA operation uh, ever and the largest besides Vietnam, right? They can The agency considers this its magnum opus, but no one knew about it. We decided to do this series about it and then it might be three parts it might be four parts we might just go forever um, because this book is just a treasure trove of information this book by uh, dr greg pulgrain which is our primary source uh, battleground indonesia um, we've got so much to cover here so right now we're just going to try to do up to eisenhower um, so that already encompasses like three decades right there, but we're going to give you all the background context because there's so many different factions and not only nations, but like different special interest groups like vying for power and Indonesia is their battleground. And then as the Cold War begins, it not all, and it, the Sino-Soviet split is like layered on top of it and there's that extra level of like Cold War intrigue, but this was a saga decades decades in the making quite literally Alan Dulles' life work. Like I think he started taking interest in Indonesia and the Indies when he was like 27 um, when he first kind of joined the intelligence service. So yeah, this is, this is an Epic, Epic saga. And there's a mind boggling amount of information, but Aaron's going to guide us through. Um, I'm going to chime in where I can and and Mike will too. And we're just going to try to make sense of all this because uh, this is, and we, we're, we're also thinking we're probably going to record something in a little bit here about, like, the CIA and the nature of the CIA and why nobody can seem to get a handle on, like, how the agency actually operates. And when when I was reading this book, and it's, it's full of, like, these uh, random anecdotes and, like, side characters that kind of weave in and out of the story, um, and it's all, like, based around vague social and political and economic connections, I was like, yeah, no shit that this is uh, confusing to explain to people because it's like a billionaire boys club and like these massive network, like cloudy hazy networks of people that just include everyone from like minor royalty. to like Nazis and oil barons, like it's, it's crazy. And it does sound crazy when you say it um, in a 280 character tweet. And that's why we had to sink our teeth into it. And hopefully this will be illuminating about, a lot of 20th century history and uh, a lot of what our place in the world is today.
2: I think before even Aaron gets going, it's important. If you listen to a lot of liberal histories about the CIA, everything seems irrational and reactive at all times, instead of with intention and, uh, uh, and calculated and actual, actual meaning behind it. Everything that they do is rational. It's a rational reaction to what is happening. Uh, They're not doing things uh, unto themselves. And this story more than anything uh, and background on it uh, kind of allows us to see that and see that in action. And there has been some highlighting of it recently um, for for example, the Jakarta Method coming out last year. But this kind of really does a deep dive. And what we're gonna talk about is um, how 30, 40 years before that, how capital and um, actual persons involved in capital brought us to this point, And it all well, talks into everything. So I'm excited to get into it with Aaron.
0: All right, and with that, um, perhaps Stu can the give PowerPoint me back you. the PowerPoints, my, power, my one PowerPoint to rule them all. So I figured the way to go about this is not just to really get into the minutiae of Greg Polgrain's book or Peter Dell Scott's work, but to try to give a little bit of geography and history to everyone, not assuming that they're going to know where Indonesia is, especially if this is an American audience, subsection of the American population, it's probably 5% chance that somebody can point out where Indonesia is or, or whatever, so And I don't blame you, it's, uh, you know, the world's complicated and our education system's not so great, so I'm going to try to make up for that with a little bit of uh, geography and such. So this is a map of the Indonesian islands, and there, of course, in the globe, you can see where it is in relation to Asia, Southeast Asia there. It's in between Southeast Asia and um, Australia. Okay, so the big islands are Sumatra there on the west, and then Borneo to the east. Part of that actually belongs to Malaysia. It's not in the map. Uh, Java is the most populated island there, and the capital of Indonesia Jakarta is there as well. And over in the east, you see half of an island. The other half isn't part of Indonesia today, but the half that you see is West Papua, um, sometimes called West Irian or. Uh, Netherlands New Guinea at different points when it was still a Dutch colony and in particular those two triangles the Grasberg and the Erzberg are these prizes to uh, some of history's greatest prizes really I think the only thing that really compares with it is Saudi oil in terms of the actual value uh, of this natural resource of the natural resources located there so yeah
1: when I was reading about this, it, it honestly reminded me of like uh, King Leopold in the Congo. Like that's that's the level of like raw resources we're dealing with.
0: Right, and it's relevant to the Kennedy assassination, which I don't want to go too deep into. But if you, you notice when Kennedy gets killed, these the three biggest resource rich countries in the on the planet, um, Brazil. Indonesia and Congo all fall to US dictators who are very friendly to corporate power and that's um, by design um, CIA was involved in all those and a lot of murder involved in all those um, because it was uh, that's neocolonialism a way to re-establish uh, colonial economic relationships without formal colonial control and uh, this the Indonesian story is what we're going to get into today
1: I guess I took for granted like just how big and Massive Indonesia is both in terms of like actual size and population because I guess the the entire like its ex- expanse of like the what is it like seventeen hundred islands in the archipelago is like the distance from New York to Dublin like that's how much it's like it's like a a seventh of the entire equator like the circumference of the Earth or something like that and there's I don't I don't know the total population off the top of my head but I think like thirty five million people live in Jakarta. Alone, which is like part of it's like one of the most des- densely populated cities in the world, and like that's part of the reason why they're moving their capital uh, to Borneo. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, just, I took that there, for there's, granted.
0: There's problems with Jakarta too, in that it was late, as I understand it, it was laid out by Dutch people, and so they built it with a bunch of like uh canals and, and drainage systems that make sense in Holland, but in in Indonesia, it causes all sorts of problems. So yeah. not just global warming, but it's probably related to historical, historically bad, disastrous planning as well that's going to be moving the capital.
1: So there's like 13 rivers in, that flow through Jakarta or something that are all heavily polluted now. So um, in addition to it being built on like swampy lands, um, most people have to, have to dig uh, wells for their water or pump their water. Out, uh, cause the public uh, water only services the rich neighborhoods mostly. So that that um, digging for water um, is actually sinking the city as well. But it's like, yeah, shitty, shitty, like temporary port city that turned into a major <laughs> world trade center. Um, like same deal with New Orleans and and Venice and shit like that. Um, but yeah, I took that for granted. And and Indonesia is also um, the Largest majority Muslim country in the world, which I don't think I definitely didn't know before doing this as well. And that kind of uh, comes into play in different ways here, too. But I'll, I'll let you continue. Sorry.
0: OK, so I'm going to talk about some of the main things that I draw from to deal with Indonesia really over the years, because I've, I've been looking into this uh, periodically for it for you know, the last maybe six, seven years. I covered it a good bit when I taught the American Century course. Uh, in more detail. And so the, the the author that I think has come up with the most comprehensive explanation of everything that led up to 1965 is Greg Pulgrain. And his first book was, he's an Australian history professor. And uh, what his first book on this This particular matter, he did other things on Indonesia. He was researching this for decades and then finally wrote uh, this book. But he'd also written another book on the origins of Confrontasi, which we'll get into much later because it's really under Kennedy that that takes off. This book, Incubus of Intervention, Conflicting Indonesia Strategies of John F. Kennedy and Alan Dulles. Very interesting story. Basically, most of the same story that he tells in this follow-up, the book that you held up and the book that you've read, Haley, JFK versus Alan Dulles, Battleground Indonesia. For this one, he got Oliver Stone to write the introduction, and afterward by our friend uh, James D'Egenio. This book is Coming to Jakarta, which is a poem that Peter Dale Scott wrote about Indonesia. Peter Dale Scott was writing about this all the way back in the 70s, was really the first guy to write that the US was behind this among Western scholars, to my knowledge. Although the relationship between him and Greg Pulgrain is something that I'm trying to actually get clarification on because. When I was speaking to Peter, uh, or actually when I was talking to Greg, because I've interviewed Greg twice for the podcast, which is coming up before too long. Uh, it's going to be two episodes. One really long interview will be made into two episodes. And I, after we were done, I was talking about Peter Dell Scott and his work on Freeport and saying that he was the first person to write about this that I, that I knew of. The, and um, Greg told me that he met Peter all the way back in the 80s in london and that they walked around london and talked about indonesia so i passed this on to peter and peter said i was going to ask you if that was greg pullgrain uh, cuz peter actually read one of these books one of the, one of greg's books but he didn't wasn't totally sure that that was the guy he had talked to all the way back in the 1980s and then in a more recent email peter said that he believes if I'm understanding what he's saying correctly, I asked him to clarify this, but as of right now, he hasn't responded, but I'm still going to tell you because it's that interesting to me. He said that it was, it was Greg talking about Freeport sulfur and some of these corporate documents that he found about the Freeport sulfur's activities in new in Indonesia that led to his writing, his 1985 article in the Pacific journal, I think, which is a Canadian journal on that's called the United States and the overthrow of Sukarno. And it is an Epic It really uncovers things that nobody knew about regarding the 1965 overthrow of Sukarno and CIA involvement in it and all these things that point to the CIA being behind the actual uh, coup that failed uh, that led to the slaughter of maybe 2 million Indonesian communists uh, and put in Suharto as a US friendly dictator. So Peter felt like. All of his work on Indonesia was not helping. It didn't make any any bit of difference at all, and it led to him having a nervous breakdown. His father is a famous poet, and Peter himself is a a poet, a a great poet, an accomplished poet. And the way that he dealt with his sort of nervous breakdown of sorts was to start to write poetry. And he wrote this epic poem, this beautiful poem coming to Jakarta, a political poem, and um, it's really a phenomenal read. Later, he wrote a companion book to this based on interviews he did with freeman ing called poetry and terror okay now coming to jakarta it turns out was a big inspiration to joshua oppenheimer who directed a documentary on the 1965 slaughter of the pki called the act of killing it was nominated for an oscar which it should have won um, and it was a, a brilliant film and it for the first time brought the subject to, uh, to Indonesia in a way that it had to be addressed by the authority. So it actually, for the first time in history, this thing that had been totally suppressed, this massacre, had been totally suppressed by a dictatorial Suharto regime and all the governments after that that were so corrupted by, you know, Freeport money and this dependence on the U.S. and, and so on um, that you really couldn't talk about it. But because of the Internet, then everybody started watching this film and it made people start to talk about this huge thing in history in Indonesian history. Uh, Oppenheimer made a follow-up to this called The Look of Silence, which is also excellent and was also nominated for an Oscar. Now, for people who are interested in this Oppenheimer and Peter Dale Scott business uh, and, and their connection to each other, one of the American Exception episodes, number four, is I recorded this in my class. It's a tribute to Peter Dale Scott And I was able to get Daniel Ellsberg and Joshua Oppenheimer himself to join the class. And they popped in on Zoom. And um, Peter and Josh had never met before, but they talked on the phone. Joshua told Peter that the reason that he made those films was because of coming to Jakarta. He said that I I was really up in the air about if I wanted to to spend all this time doing this. I had other projects in mind, but I kept coming back to coming to Jakarta. And it really – Persuaded me that I had to do it. So they they he told him this in my class, and it was great. And Ellsberg was there also. It was it's a really wonderful thing. This one's like unlocked. So if people want to hear it, you can find it on SoundCloud or on Patreon. I really recommend if you're interested in this to go and listen to it. Also has our man Ben Howard, uh, and I talking after the fact. So, um, and this is on the podcast, which is related, shares the same name with my book, where I do cover a lot of this CIA, deep state business and the the indonesia stuff i don't go into as much but it actually is a perfect probably if i ever do a second edition to this then i'll do more on indonesia because it dovetails perfectly with my thesis about a tripartite state uh, which i will try to explain as it becomes relevant as we go along okay the dutch east indies that's what indonesia used to be called maybe you remember that from When you were in history class and you talked about World War II in the Pacific and they said, oh, yeah, Japan went here. They went into Indochina. They went into Manchuria. They went into the Dutch East Indies. And like most kids in America, you might remember the name, but you're probably not likely Mm -hmm. to remember what it really was. Well, it's what is today Indonesia. First really charted by the Portuguese a long time ago. They were a long way from home, 1512. Uh, 1595, the first Dutch expedition. And they make lots of money. It's very profitable. Because of all these spices. So East Indian spices, Indonesian coffee, uh, sugar cane from Taiwan, and South African wine that you would also pick up along the way. It was very lucrative to go out for these uh, white dudes to go out and sail across the world, make it all the way over to East Asia, and get some very valuable things. So valuable that it becomes a corporate affair. And the Dutch East India Company is established in 1602. It's the uh, first real publicly listed company with like bonds and shares. And it's basically a state and military backed enterprise for the Dutch. So for the next three and a half centuries, the East Indies, as they were called, came under Dutch control. There's a map, which is not very accurate, as we can see, uh, but not totally inaccurate. You can see the Philippines and Indonesia are all kind of blurred together there. And they make Borneo a little bigger than it should be. But that was an old, that's an old map. 17,000 islands make up this archipelago, uh, resource rich described as a belt of emeralds, uh, back in colonial times slung around the equator. So this was the, the reason that we call, you know, uh, the indigenous population of the, of America, uh, Indians is because Christopher Columbus was trying to find a better way to, uh, perhaps make it over to the indies not maybe as far as all this because this part probably hadn't been charted as well right then although it would be soon but more like you know india uh, indian ocean area okay so that's the, the dutch history they were there for a long time in the 20th century standard oil enters the story 1919, This is part of this uh, business gets into sort of corporate stuff where it's like one company buys another company, and one company is a shell company for another, and then there's a merger, but who's really in control? And so a lot of this history of corporate capitalism is kind of some boring lawyerly stuff, but uh, it, it ends up being very important, and it's a way to make a lot of money, and with money comes power, and with power comes the ability to make history, and Rockefeller is a huge part of American history. Standard Oil in New Jersey buys Humble Oil, which is the number one producer in Texas. Jersey. Yeah. So when they break up Standard Oil into other pieces, then they create Standard Oil in New Jersey, which goes by the name SO, right? Which is the same as SO, Standard Oil. Okay, you can't kill Standard Oil. We're just going to troll you by naming it SO.
2: Still a brand up here in Canada. Heavy
0: brand. They, they, it, eventually that one becomes Exxon, but okay. And um, so we know Exxon. 1920 Standard Oil of New Jersey buys into Baku oil fields via the Nobel Brothers, who were these um, Central Asian oil barons. And this is dicey because you've had the Russian Revolution and it's a question as to whether it's going to be actually a good political situation for capitalists to make some money selling oil. Turns out not to be, but they try to. They try to make this effort. In, in 1921, the reason that this is relevant to this whole story is because it's, you see the Rockefellers and all that they're trying to do and get into every area, anywhere they smell oil then, oh, and money, they'll show up. 1921, Alan Dulles is in Constantinople in the embassy, and he's negotiating with this guy named von Morenschild, who manages the Nobel Brothers oil in Baku, which is on the Caspian Sea in Azerbaijan. It's that huge... Um, oil deposit that the Battle of Stalingrad was largely fought over okay it was a it's one of the biggest oil uh, producing uh, places in the world at this time so Alan Dulles what's notable here is that he meets this de Mohrenchild fellow uh, von Morenschild he's called at the time who has a son named George who comes into the story much later in the Kennedy assassination but even before then he's involved in Indonesia too in amazing ways that I had no idea about before reading Pol Green's book. Okay. There's young Alan Dulles. So
1: the elder, the elder, the elder has like the most Habsburg, like inbred ass name I've ever seen in my life. His name is like Baron Ser- Sergius von Morin Like I, so I just started abbreviating it in my notes, but I want to ask you, Aaron, before we move on, uh, how did standard oil actually get its start? I know vaguely.
0: I think that he had oil retailers around in Ohio. I think it was Cleveland even might be where he actually started. And he, he started on one level, which might've been retail outlets. And then he just kind of gradually expands into this vertical in it with this vertical integration of like everything, like barrel makers, uh, rail lines, rail cars, refineries. And he crushes all the all the competition and becomes you know largely a monopoly until the early 20th century when it's broken up but then he seems to have controlling shares and a lot of the smaller ones as well so it's a, it's a mystery to me how much what what's really happened to that kind of influence because he's really decisive in american politics up through like david rockefeller okay as the heir to this he basically handpicks D- jimmy carter for example and when Carter is, loses the Rockefeller mandate of heaven, then everything goes badly for Carter, and, and he, loses him. he loses the presidency and, and loses the support of the media and everything else, the same people that had brought him up. So a sort of standing question that I have in my mind is this fortune that they created, like, it's not like they, they blew it all on cocaine, and you've got – like, they gave some of it to philanthropy, the Rockefeller Foundation, but – you know i've heard that there's fat that through different foundations and holding companies that like they can disguise how much money they have yeah so it it could be that this fortune is actually like something that dwarfs bezos fortune and we just don't even really have like the 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 corporate ownership laws are so opaque because corporations you know can uh, bribe all the politicians to making laws that allow them to obscure their wealth and everything else that like it's a it's kind of a mystery what the real top of the upper echelon of, of capitalism looks like. So, Standard yeah. Oil and Rockefeller is is very huge, and you do have to wonder like when did they when did that blob of money ever stop becoming so huge? Because it seems to like it would should just keep accumulating money right so
2: even with the when they break everything up with antitrust like and all that it uh you know they could still have like minority shares within all those regional oil companies at the same time and then they can hide that money within foundations and like the saturation of all that money and capital in one spot it like probably and you're correct probably dwarfs what uh, even oh look at like Bill Gates or uh, Elon Musk right now they're so rich is like eh, that older money probably when they got in there when they were when they were re- really really robbing people um, uh, probably isn't in the same level and it's still prescient today
1: if you if you pay attention this story actually will tell you a lot about how people came to be able to hide such massive quantities of money with the vertical integration keeping things all in-house as far as production and all in the same family or or business empire and then you also have the the advent of like shell shell companies and shell corporations where you just hide hide businesses and hide business within businesses and shuffle them around and put them in other countries and like i mean humble oil uh prescott bush knows all about that and so does alan Dulles, right because he's you know funneling oil to the nazis through vichy france uh and 1941 and john foster goes to court for it and stuff but also um prescott bush uh and he had all the he was also uh dulles's client and he was a very esteemed like nazi money hider his whole company and like ubc and like rotterdam bank and shit like all of that all of that is tied into here and i'm actually surprised that Polgrain didn't talk about it more but there's just so much so much stuff that nobody really knows about that he had to bring to the forefront so i understand why he did it but um i I asked that because um in the book he mentions that uh the standard oil what got its start like selling uh oil uh to both sides of the american civil war which i thought was really interesting and kind of you can see uh similar tactics deployed uh throughout this story I just thought that was really interesting.
0: Yeah. The, the, I mean, when you have this amount of money, then it, 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 there's really no, um, there's no way to conceptualize it in your normal American understanding of like how the world and the economy and how your success works of like you work hard and you get ahead. And, you know, if you're, if you're not doing well, it's, you're not trying very hard and then, and so on. And, like just ruthlessness and then massive expansion and uh, uh, it, it is that's what's going to help you to accumulate the most money. And it can it's by, by definition, it's going to be a small number of people. Uh, and yeah. this Rockefeller empire is huge. And these other companies, as you'll see, they're not even just oil. You I mean, we, we don't talk about chase Manhattan, but that's a Rockefeller thing. Freeport, which we do get into, especially in the second part, which we won't go over today is, is huge. So this, this is back in the day with Dulles as a young man, and he's in the State Department, which is where they did intelligence at the time. So he was working as, the intellig- as an intelligence person, which was nestled within the State Department back at this time. And he, this comes from uh, his biography, which is a friendly one, uh, uh, you know, a flattering one by and large, this book called Master of Spies. And about this time period, it says his orders were to work on getting a peace treaty signed with the Turks to help American oil interests, particularly Rockefeller Standard Oil, to secure concessions held by the Turkish National Oil Company. So it wasn't just like, oh, suddenly with the CIA, then the U.S. government starts to become intertwined with, with corporate power in nefarious ways. This is something that is, you know, in the begins in really the Gilded Age, especially, but the relationship between um, American diplomacy and American military and corporate power is very close. Even uh, Eric Foner writes about how, uh, in, in his popular history book, which is like Give Me Liberty, right? The one that all the AP students read, or a lot of them do, um, just talks about how Standard Oil would put people in the diplomatic service and they would hire people to work for them. And that was considered okay back then uh, to work for them around the world and look after their interests. So, for this story in 1933, in the Dutch East Indies, you have StanVac, which is like standard. It's a, it's a merger between Standard Oil of New Jersey and Sakoni Vacuum Oil. Sakoni is Standard Oil Company of New York. So there's another Standard Oil Company. And then Standard Oil of New Jersey, they merge together. And then they to, uh, have this company that's uh, called StanVac in the Far East to make and market products in the Far East. Okay, Alan Dulles, who had joined the Diplomatic Service in April of 1917, he was the um, uncle or the nephew of the Secretary of State. So that's how he gets his first job. Robert Lansing is the Secretary of State. Robert Lansing replaces William Jennings Bryan under Woodrow Wilson when Bryan wants to resign and protest over Wilson's um, failure to actually be neutral. You know, Wilson was really heavily supporting the British, even though he was pretending to be neutral in the war. And so... Brian resigns on principle. Alan Dulles' uncle gets made Secretary of State. Alan Dulles gets a nice diplomatic post thanks to some uh, good old nepotism. Okay. And in this Baku area, during this time period, he negotiates on behalf of Standard Oil and to try to get this access to this oil. And it, of course, it doesn't work because the communists take over. Okay. But in 1934, Standard Oil California gets an oil concession in the Dutch East Indies. So for all these decades, Rockefeller has been trying to get into the Dutch East Indies because there's oil there. He knows it's there. It's killing him that he just can't have it. So finally, he's able to get a concession in the Dutch East Indies, which is important for us. Because Alan Dulles, in May of 1935, creates the Netherlands New Guinea Petroleum Company. Stands for NN, or NNGPM is the acronym. The M is like a Dutch word, like match or something. Uh, which means company, I guess, right? Um, and this is a 60% U.S. company and 40% Dutch, okay? The top standard oil lawyer in Europe at the time is Alan Dulles of Sul- Sullivan and Cromwell. I believe he's stationed in Bern at the time. Uh, he might've been in Paris. He kind of goes back and forth. In World War II, he's in, he's in uh, Switzerland, I believe. So Alan Dulles, who's a Sullivan and Cromwell lawyer in the 30s, uh, represents them in europe and he's negotiating this and he actually creates this company he, it's alan dulles who creates the netherlands new guinea petroleum company uh, as as a lawyer corporate lawyer one of the things you do is create you know uh, documents to create a company and this ends up being there's a young alan dulles again at Sullivan cromwell so what the, re- one, the way that they're able to do this and to get for the Americans to get a controlling share is that the Japanese had started to look around New Guinea for oil and such. And this kind of spooks the Dutch because they don't have a huge presence over there. If you look on a map and you look at the Netherlands, you're like, how, how could they be so powerful at this time period? Cause the Indonesia is way bigger than the Netherlands. The Netherlands is like the size of like, um, I don't know. It's about as big as West Virginia or something. Right. Um, and so they are worried about this, but they figure that if, the Ameri- if it's a more of an American thing, then they're going to be less likely to harm American interests. So the Americans are able to get a 60% controlling share of this company in Netherlands, New Guinea, which is that island on the far east of uh, the Indonesian archipelago that I, showed, that I showed you. And its people are not in the same ethnicity as Indonesians. So Indonesians are more like Southeast Asians, and then a lot of them are ethnically Chinese. In this, in um, Papua, the Papuan people, um, which is you know, the uh, whole island, can s- sometimes called that Papua New Guinea or something. Uh, the, they look like they they look like um, Australian Aboriginal people or Mic- uh, Micronesian people. They have darker skin. They don't look as Asian. You know, they look more like, like what we think of as the Aborigines in Australia. Okay, and Japan wanted this island. This is actually a picture of, once they take it over later in World War II, this is a a picture of the Japanese in um, Netherlands, New Guinea, or it was, I guess, Japanese New Guinea at that point. So Dulles exploiting this fear, like I said, is able to get the U.S. to have a controlling share of this company, this petroleum company in New Guinea. Okay, so J- New Guinea, this huge island, was Japan's real, real goal in the South Pacific. That ultimately, uh, it had the oil and raw materials they needed. They actually sent anthropologists to New Guinea, at the time, to figure out, okay, what are the people like here? What can we potentially do here? We know it's Dutch, but their presence here isn't that big, so we're gonna try to see what we could, what we can see there. The Dutch. Being worried about this, think we need to somehow stake our legitimacy to continue our colonial oversight of this area, and so they decide to launch an expedition to be the first to climb the biggest mountain in the on the island. It's called the Karstens Expedition in 1936. Okay, three Dutchmen go on this expedition and they discover ore on an outcrop of mountain on the island. OK, with a very high copper concentration, extremely high. And gold, lots of gold, an unbelievable amount of gold, very high, found to be uh, two times the concentration of what was the biggest gold mine up to that point, which was in South Africa, a place called uh, Withwater Sand, which which up to that point in, in his, world history was the biggest gold mine.
1: Yeah, and uh, someone who understood uh very well what was going on here already with like japan and the u.s uh fighting a resource war over indonesia was sukarno himself because he gets thrown in jail by the dutch in the early 30s like 32 33 i think and he literally predicts that uh that the u.s and japan will go to war in the pacific uh over over oil basically and so yeah japan's here sniffing around um, and this whole, how the NNGPM company gets made is like a really interesting combination of like political expertise and, and kind of savviness on Dulles' part. Um, just like random geopolitical stuff shifting around uh, with uh, like Henry Deterting is the guy who he negotiates this company from, who's like the head of Royal Dutch Shell or whatever. And he he knew Dulles from, like, uh, meeting uh, him in Nazi Germany in, like, the early 30s, uh, trying trying to court them and, and scope things out. And he's actually getting kind of pressure, a lot of political pressure from being, like, too, way too Nazi. Like, he, he like, wrote a bunch of Nazi sympathetic books and stuff. So he's kind of, like, in a bad place politically. Um, and then also, uh, I don't know, there's a – and so there's, like, a number of things happening here. It's just, like, a really serendipitous – uh, like event for Dulles but it's, it also kind of shows how good he was at, at maneuvering these kinds of situations because Japan had been sniffing around there for decades um, through I think uh, like a cotton cotton front or something like cotton manufacturing front or something and they, they were looking for this gold so even, even this early on in like the early 30s people knew what was going on here and, and what was at stake Sorry, I lost my train of thought.
0: <laughs> well, the guys that get sent there are some Dutch guys and they are the the, the one that's important here who Polgrain talked to quite a bit is Jean-Jacques Dozy and you can see him there. Uh, he is well, well we'll we'll hear more from him in just a second. So once they find this gold, it's in a place that's not easy to get to and It's also the political situation is strange because they're Dutch, but the Dutch hold there isn't very strong in general, and the company is majority American that he's with, and then the Japanese are right there as well. So this presents some problems. Um, The guys, there's another picture of the the three Dutchmen on this expedition. Dozy finds this outcropping, okay, which is part of the Erzberg, the Grassberg is, is nearby. He says, there's no other rock, it's only ore, basically. It's like an outcropping of rock, but it's not even, it's all ore, uh, you know, copper and um, gold and silver. And across this meadow is the Grassberg, which ends up being even more. The Erzberg has a crazy amount of mineral wealth, and then the Grassberg is the biggest in, in human history in terms of gold. It's this is beautiful, beautiful Golden Mountain. Okay, now he, Dozy, takes a sample of, of uh, this ore and he records what he finds, including very high gold content, very high copper and silver as well. And he puts this into a notebook, uh, which is really primary evidence of the gold discovery. He puts this in a zinc t- uh, tin in a cairn at the edge of the snow line before the three day descent. So he goes up there discovers this stuff and then decides he's going to put this this is this is explosive information and so he leaves a time capsule in so that he doesn't have to carry this information with him i, I guess and before he goes down the mountain now a year later there's a book by somebody named Colgen. he may have been one of the people on the expedition I, I believe that he was but if not he was the person that wrote the report on it um He writes a book, but it doesn't mention the gold. In 1939, there is a report on the geological um, find that that he had made, because this guy was a geologist, Dozy was. And here is the beginning of the concealment of the gold, because this report was written in English, even though Dutch was the language of the people that were on the expedition. And the way that this allows them to conceal it is that they write in the summary. In the summary, they get it wrong, but in the rest of the report, it's not written wrong. In the uh, summary, they write, as I understand it, um, 15 gr per ton is in the summary. And for an English person, person that would mean 15 grains, okay, 15 grains, which is very small. Um, but in Dutch, if you were going to write, fi- that's how you would write 15 grams. So he wrote it. Like you would write it in Dutch, but it was in an English part of the paper, which meant that it basically exaggerated by or it minimized it by like 100 times what the actual gold content was. Um, Dozy said uh, many more samples came back. What I found was correct, uh, even that it was better than that than what he had originally thought. This is what he told to Paul Green uh, in, in, in one of their interviews. The important thing here is that only... A a very small number of Dutch officials and the corporate people at NNGPM, which is Allen Dulles and Standard Oil people, right? They're the only ones who knew about this gold in 1936, 37, 38, 39, when this report comes out and everything else. So this is – Pearl Harbor hasn't happened yet, okay? The Japanese haven't really gone after Western colonial outposts yet. So they know that this is there, but it's not really accessible with the technology they have then anyway, but they know that it's there. And this is a dynamite secret. And so they've got to conceal the gold mountain.
1: Yeah. It doesn't become like technologically, logistically possible to mine so high up in the mountains until like the mid sixties with like turbine engine helicopters or something. But yeah, Colgen is this. he was the son of the Dutch prime minister who was also like one of the founders of like the modern Dutch oil industry. And he was like a manager of the Royal Dutch Shell, like subsidiary for uh, oil refinement, which it turns out they didn't actually really need with the oil around here because it was so pure. Um, But yeah, he, he was the leader of the expedition. Then he died in the war, but like, why the hell would they even publish this in English? Like there, there was so little like official reporting done on this site for a reason and like the only the first and the only one for a really long time was in English. And and you'll see this a lot with like this is where history you need historians because nobody else would think to read between the lines like that. And you see this a lot, especially now that everything's digitized where there will be really convenient like switcheroos of, of terms or or names spelled wrong uh in, in in order to like throw people off the trail or like what they did with like oswald's file before the jfk assassination where they like took it down a security level so like it wouldn't be flagged or something like there's a lot of shit like that that goes on that you just would have no idea even happens and you know buries buries the truth like that unless you're uh, freaks like us who, who spend all all your time looking at this shit
2: Well, I think that's a good question for the viewers, too, is they wrote this uh, document. Who is it for? When you say it was published, where was it published and uh, how did it uh, end up in just uh, Dutch officials and uh, company
0: hands? That's that's just it. I don't. The Dozie's report would have been a report of a geologist on a geological survey. I'm assuming that it was done for the. Uh, company itself and then perhaps because you know it's partly like royal dutch shell has a share in it so i would guess that it's intertwined with the state in some way so a small number of high officials would have had it would have had access to it but it wouldn't really wouldn't i don't think that it would have been something that would have been produced or available on demand for the for the public in that kind of a way i think it was not only is the is the actual geological information obscured in the report but i i would assume have to believe it was not widely circulated on top of that because the story is later that somebody that they somebody supposedly finds the report and says years later you know after world war ii it says oh gosh there's all this gold here but like that's not really plausible it was like it, it had to have been concealed and the report wasn't supposed to be circulated that widely anyway and even when it was it was done it it was presented in a way as to obscure what really was was discovered there
1: so the report was published like three years after the fact which is unheard of in like scientific reporting right but in in those three years uh when the netherlands is trying to take a neutral stance in the in the coming war in europe uh that proves to not be uh the case and this it actually gets published right before um the Nazis uh, invade the Netherlands, so that's that's a large part of the reason why uh, it didn't really get much attention, and, and most people didn't pick up on it. It was very, it doesn't say like what publication or out of where, uh, but it said that it was a very small, limited, limited run uh, that happened literally right before um, the Nazis invaded, so it, it might as well not have existed at all. And and that was the report that had the details. Uh, with, the, with the actual s- specifics of, of the ore, which were like, I don't think the next report comes out until 1962. So, for a long time, there was essentially no information on the actual, like, supposed, like, uh, molecular, chemical, whatever breakdown of, of the stuff. Uh, so, nobody, so there, it makes it much easier for them to get away with saying that there's no uh, valuable resources of note in this area, which so many different countries and companies and, and politicians and other figures maintain like the more and more people, dozens and dozens of people get wrapped up in this secret and they all just maintain that for like 40 years.
0: <laughs> and as Dozy, Dozy later to Paul grain sums it up nicely saying it was like a mountain of gold on the moon, which is two things, a mountain of gold, but then also on the moon, meaning that it's not really that accessible. Okay, well, the moon would, I guess, eventually become uh, accessible about the same time that that gold became accessible. Um, Unless you think the moon landing was fake, and I'm not putting that argument out there.
2: (laughs) I don't have an opinion (laughs) on that. I'm going to
0: assume the moon landing was real and that they got that gold too. By 1940, as we've been alluding to, some things are going down in the Pacific. You see what it looks like now, as of 1940, I mean. The Japanese Empire is up there. And all these other places are not what you would think of as free countries, by and large. The Philippines is a U.S. colony. Malaysia is run by the British, you know, British Malaya, it's called, and these other little principalities around there. The Dutch East Indies are obviously Dutch. And the French control um, Indochina, the British control Burma. Thailand is not formally colonized. Um, And then you have nationalist China run by the KMT, but really under attack from the uh, Japanese at this time who've occupied Manchuria, created Manchukuo, you know, the sort of puppet state there. And uh, the Japanese also dominate Korea and Taiwan. So the Japanese really begin around uh, the late 1800s, To start to expand. They fight a war uh, in 1898, the first Sino-Japanese war, and they shock the world by defeating this huge country, China, and that's over Korea. So then at that point, they start dominating Korea. They fight a war and shock the world again by defeating the Russians in 1905. Then they're on the side of the Allies in World War I, so they get some concessions like uh, Port Arthur, I think, from the Germans as a result of this, and they are looking to basically copy the West and Western imperialism and Western industry I mean, that's really what they're doing. And when the West, when the Germans take a fascist turn in Italy to the Japanese, because they're a hierarchical society, they go the route. They're going to copy the West, but the West is sort of fractured at this point between fascism on one side and then sort of welfare welfare capitalism is the response to the Great Depression in Britain and uh, the United States. The Japanese go for the fascist authoritarian kind uh it's also a good fit with their imperialism at the time too so this is what the japanese are are looking at in terms of trying to create an empire that'll allow them to have hegemony over the pacific which is not what the us wants so japan and the axis powers 1936 they signed the anti-comintern pact with nazi germany um, there's the foreign ministers of the two countries. 1937, Italy joins, and so does Spain, and they become the Axis powers. This is some World War II very quick history review. And then that's the, what we think of as the Axis powers in World War II. And they have, of course, their own propaganda like this. Postcard, good friends in three countries. It's a happy group of kids, uh, white kids and an Asian kids. So it's, in, it's inclusive, which is not always nice, except that there's a Nazi flag, which is not nice and uh, japan at this time is an imperial country and fascist italy flag too so yeah
1: representation matters y'all
2: yeah kids goose stepping together all in unison one big
0: happy family together Yep. yeah this is uh this was really something okay (laughs) so they were the they were the axis and this this is what uh this was fascism in the early 20th centuries the the japanese were they, they sometimes get like they try to split hairs over who was fascist and who wasn't. Oh, the Germans, they were, they were Nazis, which is not quite fat, which is a different kind of fascism. And then the Italians are, of course, they they call themselves fascist. Japanese have to be fascist too in any meaningful sense. They were chauvinists about their racial superiority in over the other people in East Asia. They thought they were the superior ones. They uh, harkened back to this imperial history of, uh, of a, that's a kind of racialized thing as well. H- historically, of them as this warrior culture. They create this cult of the warrior during this time period. Um, so they were, they were fascist as well. These, yeah. these guys were fascist.
1: Especially if you understand fascism as a reaction to socialism, there was like a very real possibility that there could have been like a socialist uprising or an anarchist uprising in Japan at like the turn of the 20th century. Uh, like there are huge amounts of, um, at one point, Japan had one of the largest communist parties, um, in, outside of uh, the sino-Soviet bloc, um, and also the first person to be uh, executed by the like Imperial Japanese state uh, was a, an, an anarchist woman. I forget her name, but yeah, so that's yeah, definitely definitely fascist and definitely reacting to the impending threat of not only like what becomes Soviet socialism and, and other empires taking them over, but internal as well.
0: And let's, uh, let's not forget the real central part of fascism, which is why it's not a pre-modern thing, it's a modern thing, is the merger of state and corporate power. So in Japan, these were Zaibatsu conglomerates, like uh, Mitsui and Mitsubishi, which is still around today. Um, and after World War II, they don't really get rid of the economic elites of Japan. It's why the great Japanese scholar or scholar of Japan, Chalmers Johnson, um, made a joke about the Sony Walkman and how it, the tagline should have been Sony Walkman from the people who brought you Pearl Harbor um, because they really, they did not just like the Nazis really didn't get rid of much of the establishment either. The, the Japanese um, also the, the, economic elites, the people most responsible for the Japanese empire, really when it came down to it, uh, stayed in power and they became un, they came under the umbrella of the United States. Okay, so one thing that occurs, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because it's not exactly uh, germane to all this, but I do want to mention it. The Rape of Nanjing is a notorious incident where the Japanese go into uh, Nanjing after a long battle to take Shanghai, which took longer than they thought, and they pour into Nanjing, which is just a little bit further inland on the Yangtze River. Um, and after they, they basically start to slaughter a lot of the population. There's rapes beyond counting uh and it's a rampage of raping killing and looting including the seizure of a lot of gold Uh, this is a major part of the japanese operations that they take all this gold and they ship it back to japan or some of it has to be put into the philippines later to be discovered so gold is like a huge part of world war ii and the aftermath and it's still unknown today really what happened to all that gold it's quite an amazing story and i i have to think of the Indonesian story as being, you know, related to that, which hopefully will become clearer later. So they were using people as bayonet practices. This picture on the left, there were two uh, Japanese officers who had a contest to see who would be the first one to cut off a hundred heads, right? With a samurai sword. That was something they would do. And they had a contest and they were writing about it back home in, in Japanese papers. So they really have this like sort of samurai death cult thing going on at the time to boost morale and to, you know, give people, uh, to, in, to endow the Japanese imperial mission with some kind of larger historical, uh, you know, significance and cultural significance for the Japanese. It ends up being quite horrific, uh, obviously. Um, they bury people alive. Up to 300,000 people get killed. Uh, this is on the banks of the river. The corpses pile up here. But one reason that I want to mention this is not just the gold aspect of it, but Something to keep in mind is that the US is basically fueling this. The US is selling Japan oil for all of its military conquests, like something like 80% or something comes from the US and Standard Oil. And so they are making a lot of money off of of this whole Japanese imperial enterprise um, when it comes down to it. And this is the Japanese are aware of this. They're, they're vulnerable. The Japanese are vulnerable. They want self-sufficiency in the Pacific. They realize they're having to buy oil from the U.S. They would rather buy oil from their own massive oil companies, you know, if they could. Uh, but they're dependent upon the West and especially the U.S. for machine tools, iron, oil. And they were also worried about the Russians, this Russian communist Country, if they become more powerful and industrialized, they might take revenge on them for this humiliating defeat in 1905, which is one of the most catastrophic military defeats for a, a major power yeah. in world history up to that point.
1: It actually had huge, it arguably like was one of the major things that enabled the Russian Revolution in the first place because it just completely undermined the czar's credibility at that point. It was already an unpopular war. Uh, Nicholas II was a world historically bad tactician. Uh, and like military uh, mines, so that was kind of the final straw for a lot of people. And then very, either very soon before or after, like the first Russian Revolution that happens, where they get like uh, they establish like the Duma and like a representative democracy, but it, it's just not enough. Um, and also the um, oh my god, I was going to say something about Japan. So their their depend- Japan's dependency on the U.S. for oil is also. Um, a major reason why we intervened against their oil explorations in the NNG territory to begin with, right? They tried to, they were doing those secret uh, exploration missions and the United States came in and said, hey, uh, they told the Dutch, because the Dutch were freaking out that they wouldn't be able to defend themselves uh, because uh, I don't think we really mentioned that, like, the colonial presence was very sparse, Especially in that region, though, so they just didn't have, like, the infrastructure or anything to defend themselves. So they, they come to the United States uh, because after World War I, uh, since Japan actually entered on the side of the Allies, uh, they, they were granted domain of uh, the Pacific um, in, an, in an area that just about stretched to Indonesia and they kept trying to push it and push it and push it, but the Americans kept stepping in saying no, no, no. Um, so we were asked to pressure the Japanese um, from exploring to, to undercut them basically is what we did. Um, but we had the authority to do that. And we were also happy to do that and risk an extremely sensitive diplomatic situation in the mid30s because we didn't we wanted, I pause off our oil and keep buying what fucking oil we have
0: <laughs> yeah that that is the resources are, are key there and they I believe that the hope for some Americans was that and this is probably goes for the, the, the Russians too the people that supported the Nazis and that supported you know among the, the, the American elite that supported the Nazis and supported the Japanese if you look at where's Japan where's Germany well they're both on they bookend the the, the Soviet Union. And so they're hoping that they will attack the Soviet Union uh, eventually and that they'll run into them because they're not thinking that the Japanese are going to attack the, you know, the the European colonies, which are there to the Southwest of them. So where does that leave them to go? You have China and then, uh, but the Soviet Union, you know, the Russian Soviet Union also, but they fight this battle in a a remote location, like on the Mongolian border called Nomonhan or something. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. 1939 and the Japanese get crushed. And so, they realize they're not going to mess with Russia. They <laughs> find a neutrality pact with Russia that, that holds from 1941 to 1945 until right around the time that the atom bombs are dropped and Russia invades Manchuria later, heralding wow, more,
1: more fascist uh, sympathizing from Stalin. What a, well, he was, what it, it was,
0: it made sense, he people, couldn't fight a oh, oh, yeah. war. That was why they were able to defend themselves against Moscow. Uh, when the Nazis came, because they were able to bring Zhukov back from the east, because they had, you know, agreed with the Japanese not to fight there. Because if yep. if they hadn't have, the Nazis would have taken. The Nazis would have been able to take Moscow, but they but they were able to send back those divisions from Siberia.
2: Well, yep. a bi- a big thing with that was uh, the f- like opening like ten weeks of um of actually Barbarossa going into uh, the Soviet Union, seeing how much reserves they had pulled back japan seeing that and saying no thank you uh we're not interested in getting eventually uh, swarmed and destroyed by this so that had a big thing to do with it as well
1: yeah that was always the biggest fear that japan had throughout the war was soviet takeover because it was so recent in their minds that they had like these socialist uprisings um uh, oh, i forgot my train of thought again
0: <laughs> yeah that's the the ruling class anywhere is going to be hating the communist above all else because they're for their negation you know i mean the the disagreement between like the german fascists and the japanese fascists and the like american elites like say Dulles. i mean i think it's easy enough to call alan dulles a fascist but what's the difference between like that kind of fascist and a and a nazi fascist well in the alan dulles model i think it's the the corporate. You know the corporate forces are the senior partner, and the state is goes along for the ride, and it's reversed with the Nazis more or less. Right. I mean, that's a, there are other things as well, but like when you're talking about merging state and corporate power for, for an imperial project, then y- y- that's that's really a, a kind of a fa- that that's let's let's call that fascism, and let's say that the American kind of fascism really puts the state at the service of the um, of the corporate power, with the extra caveat that. There's the democratic legitimizing myth that also can act as a constraining factor on the American fascism and makes it, con- you know, like considered, you know, not quite right to call American fascism, America's system fascist in some respects. But I think that by the time people are done with this uh, history, it's going to, you're going to, you're not going to have too much energy for arguing about how this right. is not. <laughs> There's, there's, that there's no elements of fascism in our system. but
1: that's the shit that the that pundits today will call like crony capitalism or like corporate marxism corporate communism or whatever and that's literally just fascism is what you're describing uh but i remembered what i wanted to say earlier so like nothing makes uh the fact that like oil is the lifeblood of empire more clear than like this story i mean the the stated purpose of like the nashing ron strategy that was like the the march south that japan had that they were gonna go and uh take over places like indonesia and all these all these colonies like it, it was for the express purpose of getting acquiring oil um which at this point indonesia was producing eight times more uh oil even even without tapping those massive secret wells. yeah they, they didn't
0: there. get into that wasn't the stuff they weren't even really extracting hardly anything from J- yeah yeah the Dutch from the um, New Guinea. Yeah. Uh, deposits.
1: But they needed more oil to move things along in Manchuria. That was the express purpose of, of going after this was just to continue the, the conquest and genocide there.
0: Especially when uh, these events unfold, which is July, 1941, the French go into, or the, the the Japanese decide that they're going to take over French Indochina. And the French can't really resist for a number of reasons. Okay. There's the Japanese troops arriving in, in Saigon. Uh, and it falls, I guess, July 1941. is No French I'm resistance.
1: You're fall. telling me the French didn't put up a fight
0: well they fascist. had they had fascist. run into they had run into problems shot. they'd run into problems because they had fallen to the nazis so they really were in disarray so they are able to take these places
1: oh i love fascists i don't fucking. i'm not gonna,
0: they it, it was they didn't do that well in this war i, I, <laughs> we all know I war. feel like i do a
1: bad french accent every time we fucking get <laughs> the together. the
2: understatement of the century is the french didn't really do too good in this war <laughs> Yeah, like, well, the French didn't really do too well. Yeah, no matter war who II. wins, we yeah.
1: lose. <laughs> if Anytime the French are involved. Yeah, sorry. I just had to get that in. We, lo- we love uh, anti European racism here on the culture.
0: French food is good. And, you know, I, I'm not, I, I appreciate things about the French, and I'm not somebody who worships war and warriors. So I'm not going to diss them any more than just saying the obvious Ooh. there. Now, because of this, this is, this is where the U.S. has a, an excuse to finally crack down on Japan. And the U.S. at this point wants to enter the war. The State Department and the Rockefeller-funded uh, Council on Foreign Relations uh, and the Rockefeller Foundation really funding this War and Peace Studies project to plan for the U.S. entry into the war. And they decide, these planners, that they're going to go for Pax Americana after the war. And they really want to enter in the Pacific but they don't have a good excuse to do it. There's a lot of anti, there's a lot of anti-war sentiment in the United States uh, because of World War I. There's what gets called isolationism, right? And so they need an excuse. And so even Roosevelt says, we got we need to get them to fire the first shot. The way that this is accomplished is by imposing sanctions on the Japanese uh, on oil. They're not gonna sell them oil, they're not gonna sell them the scrap metal. And this is a huge deal because, as I was saying, by 1940, of Japan's oil is coming from the United States. And this, this means that they're going to have to get the oil from somewhere else. The best alternative is in Java, the Dutch East Indies, as we've been talking about, they don't know necessarily about New Guinea, but they did already have designs on New Guinea and they were apparently aware of the oil before, uh, before the even before the U.S. was or around the same time was because it would have been the Dutch and the in the U.S. would have found out at the same time and Japan was aware of this too. Yeah, um, but
1: the plan to get Japan into the war was laid out in this thing called the McCollum memo, which was like eight points that either intentionally or inadvertently FDR followed to a T, which included uh, like the crux of that was levying levying major sanctions against Japan, which would spur them to attack somewhere in uh, in the In the Pacific, Uh, excuse me. But I actually have, I talk about this, like the McCall memo and and how we kind of baited Japan uh, to go to war with us or baited ourselves into the war. And uh, a video actually on Pearl Harbor Day over on our YouTube channel. Um, Keep fucking forgetting my train of thought. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Okay. So Japan at this time is realizing, oh, God, we're we're running out of oil. We've got this big empire. We're not going to, like, give it up, you know. We've got we've to see this through to the end. They arrive at a grim decision in late 1941. Oil supplies are running out. The U.S. is starting a massive military build, out, build up, And they think, okay, maybe there's an opportunity here. And in November of 1941, they decide that uh, they'll go to war if there's no settlement reached with the U.S. by December over this issue of oil. Either they're going to sell us oil or we're going to go to war. Uh, in December, which, of course, leads to Pearl Harbor, which I'm not going to get into here on December 7th. It also kicks off Pearl Harbor also, the the Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th, also marks the beginning of a massive Japanese invasion spree across the Pacific. They go into British Malaya, uh, which is where Singapore is, and then part of the island of Borneo, right? Um, This is simultaneous to the Pearl Harbor attack where they kick this off. Uh, There's a British ship sinking Hard to feel too sad about that. Hong Kong falls on Christmas here again, watching these British guys get frog marched by the Japanese. Not so uh, easy to feel sorry for them either. Um, on, in this case, because the Brits are the Brits, right? The opium war and everything else, the way they got Hong Kong. It, it's just the pretty cities,
2: everything like uh, What are you talking uh, it's about? wild anyway. Yes, yes. I'm all
1: <laughs> for uh, decolonization and returning uh, Hong Kong back to its rightful owners, uh, the British. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs>
0: I mean, the the it's written, Peter and uh, Oliver mentioned this in Untold History that the Japanese were greeted initially by these populations, these colonized peoples, as liberators, and yep. we'll see Sukarno actually collaborates with them because the European colonialism was was terrible, and so people yeah. thought maybe the Japanese would be actually an improvement.
1: The one spy that they worked with, Nishijima, uh, like helped write the, the Declaration of Independence that Sukarno puts out, and they started calling him like the, the, the godfather of, of Indonesia.
0: <laughs> right. And then when the Suharto regime comes in, they're, they're friendly with certain right-wing... Um, e- there's even right-wing Japanese people who are CIA assets who seem to be haven't been involved with the 1965 coup, but yeah. that's a different thing later. They go into Manila, which is an American city, Of American controlled city on uh December 26th. Okay, it's declared an open city, which means, okay, you invading force can take this over. We're not gonna resist. So please don't like, you know, uh burn and loot and kill every everybody. Um, Singapore Falls on uh 1942, which is one of the most devastating defeats in British history. They had a strange way of getting there. I think that the Japanese landed up on the peninsula and then took bicycles or something like that, something crazy and ended up taking the city. Cause you can't really attack it from the water uh, for whatever for geographical reasons, but they're able to take over Singapore, which is there at the tip of the Malay Peninsula, right across from the Island of Sumatra, you know, the Straits of Mar- uh, Malacca that you can see there. Uh, there's general Yamashita uh, taking the surrender of the British official in Singapore. Um, da- Java which is Dutch. At this point, Dutch East Indies is captured on March 9th, and there that's a mother load of resources, oil, rubber, and tin. Um, here are the, the Indonesian islands anyway, and you can see when they're able to take these at different times. So from J- February, December, January, February, they're taking over more and more of the archipelago. Uh, the last Americans in the Philippines at uh, Corregidor surrender in the month of May, and this is really, they, P- uh, Peter Kuznick says that based on his research he, th- he believes that roosevelt thought that the attack would come in the philippines that he knew an attack was coming that they didn't necessarily think it would be pearl harbor i'm agnostic on what he thought about pearl harbor i haven't really looked into it too much i wouldn't be surprised that there, there are indications that suggest foreknowledge but it's a whole that's a whole rabbit hole i don't want to try to go down yeah
1: um, um, uh, also around oh sorry also around this time um the japanese actually bombed uh the nngpm headquarters uh, I forget where exactly it was. I think it's like in the northeastern, northwestern part. Uh, but in December 41, like I think coinciding with Pearl Harbor, they they bombed uh, the company. The company headquarters uh, is very important in the story.
0: Yeah, they wanted that. They wanted that territory. They figured that, the, I don't know the extent the extent to which they knew everything that was on that island, but they knew it was untapped resources. And you can see in that postcard I showed earlier, the Japanese flag flying there, that this was gonna, this was something that they really wanted as a jewel in their, in their empire.
1: So that concludes part one of our Indonesia series. We've just barely scratched the surface and spoiler alert, part two will feature even more landmark discoveries and additional layers of political intrigue. The stage has been set for the rise of the Cold War in the Third World, the Indonesian War of Independence, the birth of the Non-Aligned Movement, and one of the grandest CIA operations in history. As we've shown here, Dulles's plan for Indonesia came together over decades of careful planning, building off the political and economic infrastructure of the Dutch and Japanese empires, respectively. We see how the fate of nationalist movements and colonized countries' role in the post-World World was not predestined, but passionately debated and shaped by myriad factors. As you'll see in the coming episodes, perspectives on the post-colonial question varied greatly, even within the ranks of the US government. Understanding the evolution of the colonial status quo helps us understand just how much of a threat JFK's vision of cooperation with the Third World was to the burgeoning US empire. We see with Dulles' extensive history doing business with the Nazis that the flow of capital is unburdened by moral or ideological constraints, and that its transformative power can shape the fate of entire nations. In addition to the Pulgrain and Bevan's books, if you'd like additional background for Part 2, we highly recommend Part 5 of the Untold History documentary series titled The 50s, Eisenhower, The Bomb, and The Third World, which we'll link in the description below. We'd love it if you could share this video with your history buff friends, Indiana Jones and Uncharted enthusiasts, History Channel dads, whoever. We've worked really hard to give you a quality breakdown of this endlessly complex saga, one that remains relatively unknown but we hope with projects like this we can start pushing these discussions into the mainstream. If you enjoyed this video, you learned something new, or even if you're utterly confused but uh, fully invested and along for the ride, I'd like to remind everyone to please support us by subscribing to the American Exception podcast over on Patreon to get more of Aaron's wisdom, and if you're listening over there, subscribe to theculture.tv over on Twitch and here on YouTube where we'll upload the full series. Aaron's book, American Exception, is also available for pre-order at Skyhorse Publishing. That's linked in the description below. Your support means we can do bigger and better series like this, unearthing buried treasures of history and connecting them to our modern world and contemporary revolutionary movements. This is heavy stuff, to be sure, but we hope you come away from it with a renewed spark and a feeling of shared struggle. So thanks, everyone, we'll see you on the next one. Peace!
0: That's it for part one. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode and for providing the music. I'd also like to express my gratitude and admiration for Casey Moore's artwork on this episode. The Alan Dulles death's head could not be more on point. This whole Indonesia saga shows us yet again why we have to keep chasing the light.